Welcome to the Faith at Work podcast. The message that I'm bringing you today I intend for the most seasoned church-going Christian, the everyday believer, and for anyone who hasn't really given faith much thought. There may be some of you listening who have good reasons for being skeptical of a stranger like me, telling you what you should believe and how you should live your life. That's not my intention. We all face the same challenges of life and faith. We'll be relying on scripture and stories from the Bible for guidance and inspiration, but we'll always be looking for ways to apply those ancient writings to our lives today. Let's dive right in and then you decide if this is a value to you. I'm going to base my message on a reading from the book of Acts. Acts contains the history of the early days of the church. I have to give you a little uh, background before I read our lesson for today. Our main character is Peter. That's the disciple who denied and deserted Jesus at the time of his arrest and his eventual crucifixion. In the years after Jesus had been resurrected and ascended into heaven, Peter and Paul are the two main figures who traveled around the Mediterranean, spreading the news of what had happened and what it meant for people. In other words, it meant that they were establishing the Christian church. Peter, unlike Paul, assumes that Gentiles, non-Jews, would have to convert to Judaism before becoming Christians. That meant the men would have to undergo painful adult circumcision, and all members of the church would have to adopt the Jewish dietary laws and customs. You see, he foresaw Christianity as just being a continuation of Judaism. In this story, Peter has a revelation that causes him to rethink that position when he's brought into contact with a Gentile Roman soldier named Cornelius. Our reading is from the 10th chapter of Acts. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all of his household, and he gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he answered, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men in Joppa for a certain Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had left, he called two of his slaves and a devout soldier from the ranks of those who served him, and after telling them everything, he sent them to Joppa. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven open and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again a second time, What God has made clean you must not call profane. This happened three times, and the thing was suddenly taken up into heaven. 
Now, while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of the vision that he had seen, suddenly the men sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's house and were standing by the gate. Then Peter began to speak to them. And he said, I truly understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This is the end of the reading. <laughs> it's a pretty weird vision that Peter had, a sheet descending from heaven filled with all kinds of squirming sea life and animals deemed unfit to eat. This story takes a little explaining. First, I have a confession to make. I'm a Cubs fan. That doesn't fit too well with some of my friends in southern Wisconsin who are Milwaukee Brewers fans. My lifelong loyalty to the team was rewarded in 2012 when our 108-year curse ended and the Cubs won the World Series. I was one of the lucky ones in the stands in Cleveland on that fateful night when Chris Bryant scooped up a ground ball, rifled it to Anthony Rizzo for the final out in Game 7. My prayers and the prayers of generations of the Chicago faithful were answered that night. God was on our side. Thank you, Jesus. Don't tell me, Peter, that God shows no partiality. But wait a minute. What happened to Duke in this year's NCAA basketball tournament? I have another confession to make. After years of supporting Bucky the Badger and loathing the Duke Blue Devils, this year I switched my loyalties to that satanic basketball team from Durham, North Carolina, when our daughter enrolled there for graduate school. Now, suddenly Coach K seems to be an all right guy, and Zion Williamson became my hero. You have to wonder at the irony of that name, Zion. Zion being the holy mountain in Jerusalem and all. Zion Williamson's is kind of a holy mountain of a man. But I guess God cast the Blue Devils down from his holy mount. They didn't even make it to the final four. Where were you then, Jesus? Are you suddenly a Michigan State fan? My final confession, I'm not really that much of a sports fan at all. At least compared to a lot of people I know. I don't pour over the sports page each day and memorize players' stats. And I have never prayed for any sports team to win. First of all, my understanding of prayer doesn't quite work that way. Prayer is not like putting a penny in a slot and receiving a colorful gumball in return. I don't bring God into sports rivalries because I agree with what Peter said after his epiphany. I truly understand that God shows no partiality. To crudely paraphrase Peter, every team that fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Duke just came up short. I'm not even going to go into the Nike shoe scandal. God had nothing to do with any of it. Because God shows no partiality. I can't think of a more relevant message for our day, extending way beyond the trivialities of sports allegiances. It applies to every situation in life where we put up barriers between ourselves and the other and then elevate our, ourselves over the others by claiming God's favor. God shows no preference for Christians over Jews or Muslims, Buddhists, 
or even atheists. God does not prefer white people over black, brown, or any other color of people. God shows no preference for straight people over gay, lesbian, or transgenders. Old people and young people are equally valued by our Creator. The rich don't get rich because God liked them better. And God couldn't care less if you're an American or an Armenian, let alone Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative. And yes, you'll be as likely to find God at Miller Park eating a Johnsonville brat as at Wrigley Field eating a Chicago dog. God shows no partiality. Period. Well, my sermon has come to a fork in the road, as Yogi Berra said. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. Oh, another sports reference. But Anyway, this sermon fork has many tines. I could tell you about racism in America. That's an important topic. I could talk about immigration, how God shows no partiality between Americans and people trying to come from developing countries. That might be interesting. And then, of course, there's the option of talking about the LGBTQ rights. I could also stir up some passion over income inequality in America. Is God partial to the rich or the poor? I could expound on the dangers of white nationalism. Yeah, we could get into a shouting match over any of these divided loyalties. So let's lay down the fork instead of sticking it in each other's eye and talk about why we feel a need in the first place to claim preferential treatment from God in so many different areas of life. There must be an explanation for such a prevalent feature of human nature. And as it turns out, there is. It's in our genes. Evolutionary science has shown that animals that live in social groups, such as families, clans, tribes, and eventually nations, have a greater chance of survival. It's easier to live in a world where there's a division of labor, and you can rely on your neighbor to have your back, and we work together. But competition arises among groups when resources get short. This competition can even lead to lethal conflict. When war breaks out, it's a good thing to know who is friend and who is foe. In sports, which is a projection of these inborn social tendencies, we conveniently wear different colored uniforms to tell each other apart. And we justify our feelings of superiority for our group or for our team by claiming God's partiality. Like the old comedian Tommy Smothers used to tell his brother Dick about their mother. Mom always liked you best. Well, Peter was convinced through his revelation, and I have become convinced that it just ain't so. God doesn't love us best. God shows no partiality. We teach and we believe in a God of total grace. Now, grace is pure, unearned, unconditional love. So God loves you no matter what. God loves me no matter what. You've all heard that. If there are condi no conditions to God's love, then, there is no basis for God to show preference for one over another. God's impartiality is upheld in the loftiest sentiments of the United States Constitution. We hold these truths to be self-evident. 
that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These words were written so that Americans would treat each other without preference as a reflection of God. God shows no partiality. But is there room in our hearts and in our souls to really believe that proclamation? More importantly, is there room in our lives to act on it? The U.S. Constitution states clearly that our equality prescribes certain unalienable rights. All human beings are be, be treated without preference. Our legal system is based on impartiality, or it doesn't work. We know all too well how easy it is for impartiality to break down and unfair preference to rear its ugly head. The recent college admission scandal is a good example. Dozens of parents of young people, most of whom were already privileged, were able to buy preferential treatment for admission to elite universities. I don't know what they were thinking, but it was wrong. Maybe they thought since God shows no preference, they'd have to buy an advantage. But impartiality does not do away with merit or competition. In fact, impartiality demands it. Whether it's vying for college admission or striving to win an NCAA championship, only when fair treatment is assured does the purity of achievement arise. I want to root for a team that doesn't rely on divine intervention. I want my kids to earn their rightful place in school and in life. Only in a country where all are provided with robust and equal opportunities will our economy and our society achieve and produce to its full capabilities. That's what God prefers. Our God of love and grace shows no partiality. As people nurtured in God's love, we must foster impartiality in all areas of our lives. We begin by teaching our children that all are loved unconditionally so that no one has to claim superiority over another. In our work, in our business dealings, we earn our way instead of claiming special privilege. We don't have to worry that God values our religious expression in our church more than those people in the mosque or the temple down the street because God's love for all of us, for all humankind, is unlimited. So let's try a new way of thinking about it. God loves you best. God loves your enemy best. And God loves me best. But you see, if God loves us all best, we've robbed the word best of its meaning. And that's why God shows no, impart no partiality. God loves us all best. That's what Peter learned. And that's what we can all aspire to. In the end, however, I can't help myself. I have to close with this benediction. In Chicago, what do you say? Cubs are going to win today. 
Amen. Thank you for joining me at Faith at Work. Whether you're at work, at home, or somewhere in between, may your faith 